Welcome to our Wow at Work podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Dargan and Liliana Ashton. And today we're so excited to bring you this, our new episode on how to create happy workplaces. And for this special episode today, we are interviewing John Ellison. John is a behavior designer, serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And he started his entrepreneurial journey when he dropped out of university at the age of 18 to start his first e-commerce business. And since then, he's been working at the intersection of business design, technology, to help make a world a better place. Uh, he honed his craft as a UX designer at a top agency in Brighton called Clearleft. And he then went on to lead a product team at Civic Tech Startup called Peak Democracy in Berkeley, California, where he experienced his first acquisition and ended up meeting Dr. B.J. Fogg, and becoming certified to teach behavior design, the methodology used to create habit-forming startups like Instagram. And John has applied behavior design in large healthcare's local governments and tech startups. He's a married father of two and lives in a community on a permaculture small holding in Norfolk in the UK. And he joins us on the podcast today to talk about his latest venture called Happy Habits, which helps people discover fun, science-backed ways to help and Build Lasting Happiness, launched just three weeks ago. Happy Habits is a free weekly newsletter where John combines his, the best insights into positive psychology and the science of well-being to help people change their behaviours for good. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks so much for having me. John, I just wanted to ask you, what is Happy Habits and how did you come about it? I think Stephen mentioned um, just a little fun side project that I started working on because I was going through a really tough time and I needed to find a way to feel better in myself. The last 18 months have been absolutely nuts for me, as I'm sure it has been for loads of people. And um, I just started actually listening to the podcast called The Happiness Lab by Laurie Santos out of Yale. And I was really struck by this kind of insight that what I thought about happiness was totally wrong. And even though there were all these challenging things in my circumstance in life, that there were actually specific things that I could do to feel well and to feel better and to make the challenges easier. And as I started playing around with these exercises, I realized that there's so many different things that can be done. And there's not many people talking about how to actually make this a part of your life. And so, you know, immediately thought of BJ's work and the kind of systematic approach to creating lasting behavior change. And I thought, oh, this could be really, really fun. And um, yeah, I was lying awake uh, after watching a football match of all things and just this kind of image in my mind of a deck of cards where each card was a specific habit that anybody could do that the science said would help them build lasting happiness. And I thought, oh man, this is really nice. I think I'd like to work on this. So that's the kind of short term is to build a physical deck of cards that anybody can buy. Um, something that's fun and playful can be shared, thrown on a desk, pinned up on a wall. And in the you know meantime, I'm basically building content through a newsletter just every single week, one habit and see what people think. And I like the real concept behind this because when BJ Fogg talks about tiny habits and you've created them into happy habits, what's the relation between those two? Um, basically using BJ's approach with tiny habits, but defining the specific behaviors as shown by the research. So BJ's approach with tiny habits is basically saying, okay, we know that behavior only happens when these three things come together, motivation, ability, and a prompt. 
And so the first step in behavior design, obviously, is getting clear about the behavior and then making sure that all three things happen at the same time. And his kind of genius breakthrough insight was that model, but he realized that the easier a behavior was to do, the more likely it would occur. And so he has this approach where he says, okay, you want to run a marathon, right? We'll start by running five minutes. And instead of trying to schedule it in your calendar at random intervals, see if you can anchor it as a part of your existing routine. And so the thing that you're already doing becomes the prompt for that behavior. And because it's so incredibly easy to do, you're just stacking that behavior on to something that's already in your routine. And it's so small, it's really easy. And then you celebrate and your brain becomes really addicted to the dopamine release of doing that thing because it feels really good and it's not hard, right? It doesn't rely on motivation. And so, you know, I could go on and on about BJ's work and tiny habits, but that's the kind of approach that I'm applying to happy habits. You know, I'm not asking people to do these really long, rigorous things that the science says. It's like, how do we break this down into its smallest parts and make it absolutely easy so that it's almost harder not to do, right? And then you use the curve to be able to celebrate success and slowly people become more and more automatic and they're doing this happy habit as a part of their life without really thinking about it, which is what I believe is the key to building lasting happiness. I'm interested in the idea of the celebration. What happens physically with inside of the body when we have that celebration at the end of achieving something that we didn't do before? It's a fascinating kind of drill down, Stephen. I appreciate that because it's, you know, this neurochemical called dopamine that's released when we're doing certain things and that makes us feel good. It's a kind of short-term feel-good happiness chemical. And uh, so it's a really important part of building habits is the emotional aspect If we're doing a habit that is driven by the emotion of guilt or shame, it's going to be really hard for our brain to feel good about it, right? Because it has this whole other host of chemicals. Whereas if we do a habit and celebrate and feel that release of dopamine, then suddenly our brain is automatically going back to that neural pathway and saying, I want more of that. And that's really how things become addictive. And so... That celebration loop is really important and I really applaud BJ for doing his very best to try and make sure that people who learn his work are applying this for good, right? Because it can also be applied, you know, for less good reasons, as I'm sure you guys are aware of. And from your experience as well, John, and how you're going to be tackling this uh, deck of cards that I can't wait to get my hands onto as soon as you have them and uh, ready, um... Why do you think it is difficult for people to maintain habits, especially those that create this dopamine um, release and build happiness within us? I think one of the the first things is that um, people just don't know what actually makes them happy. And so that's a hard starting point. It's like if you don't know the things that you need to do to be happy, then you're kind of running in the wrong direction. And so, you know, the common myth in society is like, okay, I've got to work really, really hard and achieve all these things and make lots of money, get married, yada, yada, yada. And then at the end of all of that achievement, I'll be happy. But actually, the science shows that that kind of stuff really doesn't make as big of an impact as we think. And it's some of these smaller things that happen every single day, recalling the good things that happened in that day or bringing to mind what we're grateful for that actually make us happy in the moment 
and aren't contingent upon something outside of ourself. It's what we can do right now. And so I think that's the starting point is people are just chasing after happiness in the wrong directions. And the next piece is that often people are trying to take really, really big leaps and do big things and say, okay, I know I need to exercise more to be happy because the science shows this. So I'm going to exercise five days a week and I'm going to join a CrossFit club and you know, I'm going to go at it 100%. And they often do that for a time. But most likely, depending upon the context and the person, they're probably apt to hit a wall where they get injured because they're overtraining or something happens and that whole motivation wave collapses and they're no longer able to continue investing in that behavior because they just tried to jump too far too soon. I have a little jar. Well, I don't actually. I've, I've given away these little jars of happy notes. Do you think that could help? All my friends now are having them uh, because I do my own daily one in a different way, but trying to promote this happiness vibe and dopamine release. I've been given my friends, each one of them, this jar where they have little notes, sticky notes, and uh, for them to remember to put in this jar something good and happy that happened in their lives that day. And then one day when they feel a little bit down, they can just go into the jar and start reading them. So, yeah. That's such a nice artifact as well, because I think, you know, that becomes a reminder, right? Seeing that jar. And sometimes it's nice to have something outside of yourself when you're feeling low. Like, oh, you know what? There it is, that colorful stack of sticky notes and that glass jar of all the good things in my life. And it's maybe easier to reach into that jar and put those pieces of paper on the table than it is to just sit down and remember because sometimes our emotions get on top of us. Our inner voice can turn very critical. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think your intuition is spot on. The, the research shows that just the simple act of recalling three good things for 15 days in a row can have lasting impact on your happiness for months, right? And so the idea of making it a physical artifact is Awesome. I love that. I love that exercise because that's one of the exercises that I teach on uh, on workshops and I've been doing for years is the three things that you're grateful for in the past 24 hours or, or that you're grateful for right now. And people seem to te- or tend to think that that is such a simple exercise that it can't possibly have the profound effect that you're telling them that it's going to have. W- what's actually happening when we do that? I think that's it's a really interesting insight. You know, I think a lot of people assume that it's going to require these big acts or these things to happen outside of ourselves. But I think, you know, there's there's a couple of phenomena at play here. And the reason why, you know, be recalling things that we're grateful for and thinking about the good stuff in our life helps to change our thought patterns. And the way I look at it and some of the research talks about this phenomenon of negativity bias, where in essence the human mind has evolved to survive in a dangerous environment, an environment that you know much more dangerous than the one we live in now. We're not physically in a jungle with lots of threats around us needing to have this hypersensitive awareness about all of the danger that we need to flee from. We're at home, we're working, we're on a screen, we've got kids, we're commuting, like we don't have that physical danger. And so our minds have evolved to be hyper aware of these risks in our lives. And so the the voice in our mind, our thoughts tend to anchor on those negative aspects around us and get stuck in these loops. And so what gratitude and remembering good things does sort of subverts that negativity bias and makes those thoughts about good things more natural. And the idea of neuroplasticity shows that 
the more that we think a thought or do a behavior, the kind of more well-paved the path is in our mind. These neural synapses fire, and the more it happens, the more automatic it becomes. It's really simple to recall three good things. Yes, it doesn't seem like it will actually make you happy, but it's actually probably much more significant than getting a pay raise, than going on on holiday even. The lasting benefit of changing the way you think is significant, and it starts with really small things. That touch upon so many things, like going on holiday to, to feel happy. And if you're not happy, you take your worries and uh, your stresses with you on holiday and maybe make it less, less uh, enjoyable. But also you've touched upon neuroplasticity and our brains being in constant state of stress and releasing cortisol instead of dopamine. And of course, with breath work, that's what I try to 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 help and to teach in terms of how do we let our mind do what they're, they're supposed to do, which is keep us safe, but without this extra overdose of cortisol and managing our uh, minds and our uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems through the power of your our own breath. I suppose breath um, that is very close to my heart is something that I've also learned that if you do it as a habit, becomes a really powerful habit to give you peace or to give you energy and basically making your life I totally agree. And breath work was really one of the breakthrough behaviors that enabled me to break through this black wall of muck that I was experiencing in the last 12 months. I had an intensely stressful time with this startup that I had run, had it sort of falling out with one of the founding team members. He was threatening legal action. He threatened my family. And it was really really unpleasant. And my brain was just stuck in this negative loop. And uh, it was actually Wim Hof and both the cold water immersion and breath work that really helped me subvert that sympathetic nervous system, which was just telling me danger, danger, danger. I remember lying awake at night feeling this sense of danger, but actually like I was fine. I was totally safe. My brain was just stuck on this rewind of danger. And that simple practice, even a four-minute breathwork exercise, really helps to shift your parasympathetic nervous system. And I actually ended up measuring my heart rate variability with this whoop strap in order to figure out what the things that I was doing, which were boosting my parasympathetic nervous system, because HRV is one of the best measures of that balance between those two, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. And so it was really that profound experience of like, okay, three minutes in a cold river and four minutes or even up to 20 minutes of breath work totally shifted my physiology and my thoughts. And I went, wow, this stuff is really powerful because on the outside, like it's quite uncomfortable to be in cold water. It's quite uncomfortable to take these really deep breaths and hold it. But actually, if you can find comfort and discomfort, there's something that unlocks in your mind and in your body and suddenly you deal with stress in such a different way. And they, they talk about the role of stress and the role of cortisol in the workplace as a really negative, detrimental factor that affects people's well-being, their productivity, culture, all of these factors. And yet 
it's a shame that we've got our breath every moment of every day and so many people aren't aware of the power of the breath to transform your body and your mind. I was only thinking about that yesterday, what you just talked about that, John, about cold immersion and, and getting into cold water, what it does to the body. And I actually did that yesterday. So my daughter lives on the West Coast here of Ireland and I drove over to, to catch up with it for a day with her yesterday. And we went for a walk along and it wasn't a particularly warm day here yesterday in Ireland, about 15 degrees and there was a bit of a wind coming in from the Atlantic. And we're walking along the promenade. We are out in Galway and uh, we had brought her swimming gear. It was in the car. And then she was humming and hawing and said, do you think we should get in? And I think she had the idea that if I didn't speak about it, it wouldn't happen. And I sort of got to the end of the pier and I saw people diving off this diving platform into the water. And I said, well, if they're enjoying that, we got to do some of this too. So I said, let's go back to the car and get our gear. And she says, do you think so, dad? And I said, yeah. So we did that and we got into the water. Now, the Atlantic doesn't get very warm at any time. It's probably at the warmest time it's going to get anyway now, but it's still never going to be totally warm. And the two of us got into the water. And one of the things that she said to me after a couple of minutes in there, I said, Dad, this is incredible, isn't it? The only thing we're thinking about is here right now in this moment. And we're not thinking of anything else. And I said, it's so true. So every moment you're just thinking about like when you're in that cold water about the present and all those anxieties that are future-based and all the worries and depression and sadness that come and regret come from the past are not with you at all. It's just that incredible experience. Why I'm saying that is that, and I presume it might be the very same in the UK and many other countries, that cold water swimming and cold water immersion has become quite a big thing in Ireland. And, and people are beginning to use it because we've, we've discovered we're surrounded by ocean, as simple as that. And it's the way our country is and we fought against that for years and going for a swim was never seen as a very Irish thing to do you sort of avoided getting into the water and now people have seen that there's a really really great experience by getting into the water and being alone with that moment in time and the cold and battling against what's going on and more and more people are setting up groups and doing it and it's it's been an absolutely fantastic thing for for so many people and for us for ourselves and it's it's actually something that I've created as a habit so the first thing I do every morning is that the shower just after it's warm for a slight bit, it goes on to cold. Why I'm asking you that, John, is how do, we, how do we allow those habits to become habits, as in we do them as a constant, rather than just a one-off? Or how do we integrate those three things that we're, we're grateful for at the start of end, end of each day? How do we integrate them into our lives? The first thing I love BJ talks about is encouraging people to only do what they actually want to do. And some people don't want to get in cold water. You know, I didn't for the longest time when I was in the UK, it was similar to the people you described and I didn't want to do it, you know? And so at that point, that behavior wasn't a good match for me. So I think having that kind of open honesty with yourself about, okay, here's what the science says. These are all the different things I can do. There's lots of them. Let's just pick the ones I actually want to do. And even trusting your intuition to think about like, which of these is going to be effective for me and going with that gut instinct. And then which of these... Can I actually get myself to do as a routine? And trusting that instinct and then going with whatever behavior that is that you've chosen, that's something you want to do, you think is effective and something you can think you can actually get yourself to do. And then doing it at whatever frequency is appropriate, right? Because sometimes you don't need to do something every single day. Sometimes you don't need to do something every single week. Sometimes there's a nice balance of saying like, hey, you know what? I did that cold water swimming thing. That was really fun. And yeah, once a month, every time that I feel like I'm struggling, I'm just going to encourage myself to go out there and get in the water. You know, that could be a good fit. Or, you know, somebody like you, you've said, hey, I really enjoy this. I'm going to turn my showers into a cold shower and get that cold water immersion there. You're already taking a shower every day, probably. I don't know, maybe. 
and having that anchor, right, of something you already do, you've got your new behavior and you're just setting that routine as a prompt and saying, okay, here we go. Cold shower today. Breathe it in. Let it flow through you. Follow your breath and then celebrate. Feel good. And fortunately, for anybody who's been in cold water, you already get that natural release of positive emotion. It's an amazing experience. It's so invigorating. And so that kind of neurochemistry is sort of working in your favor. You don't have to really do too much about it. But maybe, you know, adding a nice warm drink at the end of it, giving yourself a verbal pat on the back, like, hey, you did that. You didn't want to do that today, but you totally did it, Stephen. Like, well done. There's so much in this space around how to make behavior stick. And uh, I think it's just really important to be playful about it. Why not take it too seriously and be compassionate with yourself. Know that life is hard. Change can be hard. And uh, yeah, start small and see how it goes. Is the problem that a lot of the time we're very hard on ourselves. So if we miss out on a particular exercise routine or a particular habit that we we were supposed to do every day, we're quite tough on ourselves. And how do we combat that? I'm really loving Ethan Cross's book called Chatter, uh, which is so much about this. It's kind of the inner voice and when it turns against us. And I've very much experienced that at varying times in my life. And it's it's interesting how you have thoughts that can suddenly just be intensely self-critical. And so there's a whole host of things that you can do to change that. And it has a massive impact on happiness. So one of them is um, called psychological distancing. And Ethan talks about there's kind of two different ways to do it. One is just by using a pronoun, third person pronoun, when you're talking to yourself. So instead of saying, I messed up, say, John, you messed up. And it's okay. And using that third person language allows you to speak to yourself like you would speak to a friend. Because frankly, you'd never speak to a friend and say, Stephen, you messed up. You're a fool. I can't believe you didn't do that today. You would never speak to someone like that. And it's a surprisingly small but powerful technique to just speak to yourself in the third person, to use words like you would a friend, be encouraging, and then watch what happens. And more often than not, that critical inner voice has a bit of release. It's like, ah, there was a bit of compassion that I needed to fit with that disappointment. Whatever emotion was driving me to feel critical about myself. And there's also another one, a psychological distancing technique I found really helpful, which is um, temporal distancing. To think about the current event that you're feeling very bad about from the future and wondering okay, three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, how am I going to feel about this? And there's there's also a a technique that um, is from Positive Intelligence, which Liliana, I so appreciate you bringing into my world. It's been really transformative for you. Even say, how can this current challenge that I'm experiencing be the best thing that's ever happened to me? What do I need to do to make this current problem the best thing that ever happened to me? And instead of your mind thinking about all of the things that are going wrong, you go into problem-solving mode. You go into creative inspiration mode and you think about, okay, these are the things that I could do. And viewing that internal crisis as an opportunity, as a gift to become a better version of yourself is a phenomenal way to combat the inner voice that goes south when things go wrong. I'm just wondering if we then transport these amazing principles into the workplace what would be the best and easier way for everyone to implement them in the workplace what can we 
ask leaders of places or workplaces to do to help to implement them? I think leaders have a great responsibility to understand what the science says about well-being and to make decisions that help their employees be well because happy employees are far more productive and they're far more pleasant to work around. And teams that are motivated by a shared purpose and enjoy working together are going to get so much more done. That's how change happens. And so there's quite a few behaviors, but I think one of the key ones is openly encouraging separation from work and life such that employees aren't constantly on the hook and expected to be responding to emails or Slack messages around the clock. Because the science shows that when people don't have a separation from their work, they burn out and they're not as productive and the stress bleeds into their life and it really affects the way that they perform, the way that they feel about themselves. And it has consequences for their health, their immune system. And so even having you know an explicit company policy of like, don't work on the weekends, or if somebody sends you an email after 6 p.m., don't respond to it. Unless, of course, it's mission critical urgent. But I think that that small behavior of writing something down and sharing that with the team as a leader and then doing it yourself, of not being the one who's emailing at nine at night and expecting a response, unless actually business solvency depends on it, is a really powerful and effective way to help people be happier in the workplace. And so, you know, that's just one of them, the kind of maintaining psychological distance. But I think. There's other things, you know, if you've got a physical workplace and you can, you know, have spaces and support for things like mindfulness and yoga and breathwork practices, if you can actually invest in a place that people can go to as a part of their work routine, either at the start of the day or at a lunch break and make it a part of the culture where everybody goes to these things and invests in themselves in that moment outside of work. Science shows that meditation, even just 10 or 15 minutes of it, has massive cognitive benefits. It has benefits for our health, it has benefits for our sleep. And these kinds of things are not that hard to do. Meditation is a known thing. And just having somebody come in to be able to guide a session to help employees, you know, balance their mind, their nervous system, to be able to then go back to work in a more centered and calm way has you know, such amazing benefits. I think that's wonderful because I think one of the things that we fail as leaders within organizations is that people follow what we do and not mm. what we say. So if we're a leader and we're the one firing out the emails at eight o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night are asking people to take texts or, or phone calls at, at weekend hours, that's a problem and that's an issue. And as leaders, we need to be more proactive with that, exactly what you're talking about, because the science is proving exactly what you said. Like we work in cycles of ultradian rhythms, which are 90 to 120 minute cycles. We've all got different ultradian rhythms, but so much of us at the workplace are so much of the, the workspace has been designed to work through these things rather than to take rest. So the idea is that when you come across a problem, you just put your nose to the grind and you just keep going with it. And the science goes to prove that you're getting very ineffective very quickly after a certain amount of time because the body is doing stuff like trying to, the lymphatic system is trying to get rid of waste within inside of the body and the mind is trying to formulate all that, the different information that you took into different folders within the brain. So I love the idea of organizations that really allow for the idea of taking breaks or whether it's through mindfulness or whether it's through yoga. And I know we've lived in a world probably in the last five or 10 years of eating our lunch at our desk and continually taking information, whether it's information related to work or not. 
And it's really, really ineffective. And I think people need to realize the importance of taking those breaks and taking those little micro... um, I I think the Swedish do it very well. That They have a thing, don't they, called Fika, which they do at three o'clock every day, where they all stop for a coffee and a pastry which sounds like a really good thing in any world. But I like that idea. So that's inbuilt into what they do. That's, that's the little micro hap- happy habit that they have, that it is a known that they will stop the production line in organizations in Sweden and they will all come and communally meet and have a coffee and have a pastry and have a chat and connect on a human level. I really like those ideas, those, those habits that we build in. Here's another one, John, that you might have heard as well that seems to work very well. It's the idea that when you're starting a meeting with a group of people in the room, start on a positive. So you can actually go around the room and ask everybody to share one thing that they're grateful for, or thankful, or they're happy about doing in the last while or 24 hours. And when you start that meeting on a positive, the direction of the meeting is generally going to go in a far more positive way than it would be if you started off with something that was quite negative or arbitrary. Yeah, it's something that BJ always did. I remember very noticeably seeing the impact that his workshops had when he started. Okay, quick round. What's one thing you're grateful for? Totally changes the tone. And I want to touch back on a couple of things you mentioned, Stephen, around you know, taking lunch at your desk. I was astounded to see there was this study in Canada 2013 that showed that people who would eat lunch at their desk would tend to be those that were the most depressed at work. And depression is obviously correlated to low productivity and it has negative health consequences. There's costs to the organization, costs culturally. And I was yeah, really disappointed to find that there is a very heavy kind of lunch at desk work culture at certain places in the UK. I went to this co-working space in Norwich when I was first here and everyone was eating lunch at their desks. Like I was there because I wanted to be with people. And so I'd, you know, eat my lunch out in the communal space and kind of like, hey guys, come on, let's hang out. And, you know, people just don't get the impact that sitting down at your desk, eating lunch has on your psyche. And they're totally unaware of those rhythms, those working rhythms that you described. And the you know, science shows the simple act of getting out of the office with some friends, eating lunch in the sunshine has really significant effects on your well-being. And frankly, it's like life is too short to just slog away constantly. We totally deserve to give ourselves that space. Yeah, and also something that I've learned um, about the circadian rhythm is to do with um, getting out, again, another really simple habit, getting out there in natural daylight for a little walk or just looking out and having an expansive view in front of you. So it just gives your nervous system this boost. Okay, it's time to wake up and it has to be ideally in the morning. So I sometimes used to do, okay, I'm doing all my very healthy routines in the morning and I do my breath work every morning, my yoga, my cold showers, lemon uh, before everything, all my my habits. But I realized that I was missing something, which is definitely going out. So these little habits, and it could be five minutes round the block and back small habits that I feel are part of our behavior design, talking about behavior design in organizations, in our own lives that can just come and make such a huge difference. But yeah, talking about behavior design, I'm really interested in it. And uh, and I, w- I know your vast experience, John, and I would love to hear a bit more about the, the type of behavior design that you went and in- helped implementing in big organizations where you've been involved as a consultant and how in those workplaces you have created lasting amazing 
is in good changes. <laughs> so yeah, I think there are definitely lots of different examples, but there was one in particular where I was kind of surprised. I got a call out of the blue from a client of a large multinational healthcare organization, and she said, "Hey, we've got a workshop with." 12 executives from all over the world on our type 2 diabetes team. We're basically completely redesigning our business model away from a drug-centric approach to a patient-centric approach. And we believe that behavior design is the methodology that will help us get there. And I was amazed to see that kind of drive and inspiration from a company I assume would have just stuck in their own ways of of working, who had actually realized the evidence is very clear that throwing pills at a person with type 2 diabetes and having insulin injections isn't going to work. They often do develop comorbidities and the, the data shows it's not effective. But actually helping the patient understand the specific things that they can do to be well and looking at a kind of more ecosystem approach towards solving for that behavior change, because frankly, type 2 diabetes is reversible. It's a lifestyle disease. And they clocked that and they were willing to invest you know, huge amounts of money and time and resource into testing out ideas about how they could make people well. And I was really humbled by that experience. And so what started off as a day-long workshop has ended up being a long engagement looking at how you can use behavior design to help people with type 2 diabetes and other chronic lifestyle illnesses to live better lives. I can't go into you know too much detail than that, but I think that's sort of an example of a use case that just shows how powerful this can be at an organizational level, but also at a human level. There was another example, wasn't there, based around uh, the canteen at Google? Was it around foods? Yeah, there was something um, that my buddy Andrew Zimmerman uh, shared in a case study around redesigning the cafes at Google. And the idea was, okay, you've got a bunch of software engineers who are going into a cafe with loads and loads of food, and they tend to gravitate towards the more sugary, sweet foods. And how can you, without making them feel like their choice is being removed, redesign the environment to, you know, have people eat healthier? And in a combination of working with the chefs and redesigning the layout and testing ideas of how to work up the space, they had a, a data point showing they'd reduce something like 3 million calories just in M&M consumption by redesigning the, the space using behavior design. And it's a funny, small data point, but it just shows that actually our built environment is very impactful in the way that we make choices. The default is something that we should always consider. And in an organization, we should be very specific about how our employees interact with food, interact with breaks. And if we can make the good choice the easy one, it's far more likely that people are going to take that. I, I heard something else uh, based around sort of behaviours that differentiate, say, us here, say, in the UK and Ireland, where we drive on the left-hand side of the road and people who drive on the right-hand side of the road. Have you heard that? <laughs> that when we walk into supermarkets, apparently your default state if you drive on the left-hand side of the road is to turn left. So all the special offers and the buy one, get one free are put on the left in UK and Irish supermarkets, go to America, and they put them on the right-hand side because that's the default uh, movement for people. So... If you want to create a habit where you avoid the buy one, get one free, the Ben and Jerry's and all that's good stuff, that is nice normally. But yeah, you, when you're buying too much of it, it's not good. Just turn right. It's good to know the, the methods that are used because then you can subvert it and say, OK, you know, this is how the environment is being designed. And I'm going to you know, turn right instead of left and walk through it. 
Yeah, apparently free is also Dan Arley, who does a lot of stuff based around sort of behavioral economy, uh, economics and, and psychology, talks a lot about that. There's a threat that we feel inside of our head when we see something for free and we refuse it because free feels we're, we're losing out if we don't take the free option. So that's why buy one, get one free feels like even if we don't need the second uh, item at all. We have a fear that we're losing out on something that's important. And us as humans, we, we like to store things as well. So we, we'll automatically go for the free things. And that's why it's really, really effective when we stick by one, get one free. But if we're smart enough to be able to stop and come out of that sort of emotional part of our brain and come into the decision, rational part of our brain and go, do I really need two tubs of you know ice cream or two bars of chocolate or two jars of peanut butter, whatever you know it might be, then we can stop that habit. Uh, and it's only from reading that I began to realize that I've been manipulated in many, many ways that are not sort of helping my life. And uh, what you're talking about, which are happy habits, is about manipulating people. Well, not manipulating people, but creating things in our lives that enhance our lives. And that's what I love about what you do. John, you told us about these cards that you're designing. And uh, I'm very curious to know a little bit more about it when they're coming out, because I want to get my hands onto some of them as well. So, yes, please tell us. Thanks, Eliana. Yeah, so basically I'm just starting with a weekly newsletter that's free. So anybody listening want to get a happy habit delivered to their inbox every Friday, uh, check out happyhabits.fun. And eventually, when I feel like I've got a good critical mass and the content's working right, I'm going to distill all of those weekly happy habits into a deck of cards and hopefully launch it on Kickstarter as a crowdfunder. So it'd be great if people were up for supporting that process. But I'm also just looking for collaborators. An illustrator comes to mind. People who are good at marketing. I'm not. That's not my thing. Come to mind. And uh, yeah, just anybody who's interested in happy habits in general. It'd be really fun to work with awesome people. I don't really like doing things alone. So there's that side of it. And I've also thought, who knows, maybe if the deck of cards goes well, I could turn it into a little digital app. Something that people can have that will sort of deepen their discovery in these behaviors, add a bit of a community element, have some kind of prompts and behavior formation stuff in there. And uh, yeah, that's kind of a long-term thing. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But just sort of having fun, trying to make a deck of cards and see if we can get something out there that helps people live a little happier lives. Oh, fantastic. I like the sound of that. And what, what will the, the, the cards involve? They're little prompts, are they? Each card is a habit or behavior. And it's just kind of a, a quick summary of what the behavior is, um, the research overview, and then behavior tips about how to make it easier to do. And then I've also got like some unhappy habits, some specific things that we do that are shown to make us unhappy. And then there's also some cards that are core research concepts like the hedonic treadmill, negativity bias, things like that. And I might even try and include some of the actual like happy folks that are doing this research and applying these behaviors because there's some really amazing people out there. And that's how I've come to discover this stuff is because there's brilliant, passionate people all over the world who've dedicated their lives to figuring out what makes us happy. So I want to try and surface them, but got to figure out the IP and licensing of, of uh, using these people's names and such. Um, but yeah, that's the idea around the cards and um, yeah, something that can be playful. I like that idea because I, w w we have all got caught on on the whole hedonic treadmill and, you know, life and happiness is, is better when it's eudaimonic. Um, and I know that's what you, you'd be striving towards. You've mentioned two things just before we do finish up two things. You've mentioned one, which is an, an unhelpful habit. And then we're going to finish on one of the helpful habits that you want to be able to share with us. But if you want to give us an unhelpful one first that people 
more of them we need. I think the main one in our society today is comparing ourselves to others. When I discovered the research that shows that actually the more you compare yourself to other people and the more you use things are the same thing, the unhappier you are. I was really struck in my own mind how often I was feeling bad because I had just compared myself to somebody else. And so it's a mental habit, but it's something that's often prompted by something we're doing in the real life. And so if you're a person who's using lots of social media and finding yourself thinking thoughts, self-critical thoughts about, oh, I'm not as good as this person, or I don't look as good as this person, or I haven't done this yet, then become aware that that comparison is something that's in human nature, but it's not making you happy. So try and trade that behavior of scrolling through social media with something that will make you happy. And that's the unhappy habit that I'll share. And then I'd say there's a happy one, a quite, I don't know, a poignant one, but I think it's effective, which is imagine that the thing you're doing is the last time you're going to do it and see what happens. And so I had a really profound moment of this a couple of weeks ago where my wife gave birth to our second son. It was quite a sort of tumultuous time, um, baby ended up being breech unexpectedly. So came out foot first, which is very risky. And we were at home and neither of the midwives had delivered a breech baby before. And uh, it was pretty touch and go. And it took little Jesse about five minutes to take his first breath. And that was the sort of first moment of really feeling like, wow, this might be the last time that I see this child. But then there was another moment where my wife uh, started having chest pains and shortness of breath. And we called thinking they'd say, oh, it's just a you know typical pregnancy symptom and ended up being a you know classic symptom of a pulmonary embolism, which is like 15 to 30% mortality rate. And so there was this moment in the car, like two in the morning with my wife, my eldest son, Ruben, and then this newborn baby. And we didn't know whether she had this pulmonary embolism or not. She hadn't had the test. And it was just this incredible savoring moment of being like, could this be the last time that I see my wife? And, you know, it made that moment the sweetest moment that I can remember to date, even though we were all just stuck in a tiny car in a hospital car park. And you don't have to have that kind of context to be able to trick your mind into thinking that savoring thought. You can be doing something very simple and mundane, but just think, I wonder if this is the last time that I'll do this thing. And suddenly it feels great. My goodness, yes, it's something that is part of my habits. In the morning, we wake up and uh, just um, every morning, even if the practice that we do, breath work or yoga is 10, 15 minutes, the first thing that we do is thank for what we have and uh, it's just not to forget that it could be the last time that you can thank for those things. And it's so powerful, so, so powerful. It brings you straight away to the here and now and to really valuing what's happening right now in your life rather than thinking um, about what's what you want and what's the thing, the next thing that you need to chase after. It's about uh, the journey and not the destination. And uh, in Spanish, I've got a, a book next to me and I know it's in Spanish and you can see it here. It says, um, um, la vida es un viaje y no una carrera. It's like the, the life is a, is a journey. 
and not a race. Oh, I love that. So that was a wonderful way to be able to finish our podcast today with John Ellison. John, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing all these beautiful uh, tips on how we can create small little sort of micro habits in our lives that create, you know, happier, more experienced and more full, fuller lives. I think we need more of that, not just in uh, the workspace, but in our in our lives as a whole. John, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Liliana.